Our Untangled Minds by CUSM is for informational purposes only and does not constitute professional medical or psychological advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Please make sure if you do have any questions or concerns that are medical or psychological in nature that you seek out a physician or qualified mental health provider for further help. Furthermore, the information, viewpoints, or opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the views of the individuals that are involved. They do not represent absolute fact and are subject to change at any point in time. CUSM does not accept responsibility for these views. Lastly, the names and details of any medical stories shared in this episode have been edited for privacy. Hello, nerds! This is Regina Chi, your host, and welcome to another episode of Our Entangled Minds. Today's episode is a little bit more unique in the sense that we'll be discussing a topic that has barely been at the forefront of our minds, COVID-19. Okay, okay, it's hard to escape from COVID and the barrage of daily news and updates. However, we hope this episode can teach you something new, specifically about long COVID, or the persistence of symptoms long after an active infection is resolved. SARS-CoV-2 isn't a dangerous virus only because of how easily it can spread or cause severe inflammation that can even result in death. It is dangerous because even if you survive, there's no guarantee you will ever get better. So sit back, take a deep breath, and enjoy this journey into COVID research. Let's begin with a little bit of background regarding COVID-19. As you may know, when we refer to COVID-19, we are referring to the disease responsible for the current global pandemic, caused by a member of the coronavirus family, SARS-CoV-2. The SARS in the name stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, first classified in 2002 after another similar epidemic. Essentially, the coronaviruses from which we get the name CoV-2 are a large family of single-stranded RNA viruses that can cross species barriers and cause, in humans, illness ranging from your common cold and flu symptoms to more severe respiratory diseases. Before we move on to discuss the mechanisms in which SARS-CoV-2 gets into the cell, here's a little fun fact about the cove family. The coves have a crown-like appearance under an electron microscope due to their spike glycoproteins on their envelope, and so they were aptly named coronaviruses because the name corona stands for crown. The SARS-CoV-2 virus first enters through the nose or the mouth and attaches to cells using a spike protein. This spike protein binds to the surface ACE receptors, which grants it entry into the cell. This key and lock mechanism has been extensively researched after the 2002 SARS epidemic. Once inside, the virus releases its genetic material into the healthy cell, where it then hijacks the cell's own resources to multiply. The mechanism by which SARS-CoV-2 enters a cell via the ACE2 receptor protein is particularly dangerous because of how abundant this molecule is throughout the human body. ACE2 can be found in the airways, heart, GI tract, kidney, and more. The main function of ACE2 is to cleave peptides from a larger protein, angiotensinogen, to create smaller proteins. The virus doesn't care about this function of the receptor. Instead, it simply uses its spike protein like a key to the ACE2 lock to open a metaphorical door into human cells. Although the pandemic has focused a lot on the severe complications that may result from COVID-19 illness, the truth of the matter is that for the majority of individuals affected by COVID-19, they'll show no or only mild symptoms, 
If symptomatic, patients will typically develop symptoms at about five days after their infection, known as the acute phase or early stages of infection. Symptoms include fever, cough, body pain, and headaches. There is even atypical symptoms unexpected for a respiratory illness, such as smell and taste disorders. In one survey of 202 patients with mild COVID-19 in Italy, almost 64% reported smell and taste disorders. COVID-19, like other respiratory viruses, may cause more deadly problems like pneumonia, acute respiratory distress syndrome, respiratory failure, and sepsis. The damage to the lungs is caused by our body's immunological response to the virus and may lead to a patient needing ventilatory support to live. After the battle is over, fibrotic wounds and scars are left. In most patients, their symptoms usually go away within one to two weeks, matching the expectations of our immune system defending against viral infections. However, some patients may manifest a pattern of disease that may proceed to develop into something more severe. Recent research has shown that the severity of COVID-19 disease may be influenced by how well the virus can evade the immune system early on. The human body has multiple lines of defense. Our skin is the first line of defense acting as a physical barrier, and then our immune system makes up the second and third lines of defense. The second line of defense is the innate immune system equivalent to our standard police force. The innate immune system is quick to respond, but not specific. Just like the police are first on the scene, but may lack special training. The third line of defense is the adaptive immune system, similar to special forces. The adaptive immune system is more specific, just like the special forces are better trained, but can take a little longer to get together and arrive on the scene. Because the virus is able to avoid our first and second lines of defense, it delays our third line of defense that is made up of highly trained super soldiers known as T-cells. Essentially, without the innate system there to sound the alarms, the adaptive immune system takes longer to mobilize. In the absence of our adaptive immune system, our innate immunity tries to fill in the gap by initiating a non-productive inflammatory response that ends in respiratory failure, admission to the ICU, or even death. Unfortunately, children were not spared from rare and severe inflammatory responses associated with COVID-19. Just to paint a picture of severe COVID-19 disease affecting children, think about a school-age child sick with fever, rash, bloodshot eyes, and with severe abdominal pain vomiting, and diarrhea. Very often, the children may have family members who have been affected with SARS-CoV-2 around three to four weeks prior. This disease is called multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, otherwise known as MISC, and it is a late manifestation of the child's immune response. Remember our body's second line of defense, our very own police force known as the innate immune system. Well, they are causing chaos and destruction rather than restoring the peace. There has been more than 600 cases of MISC in the U.S. The average age is nine years old, and more than 63% of cases have been Hispanic or Latino children or non-Hispanic black children who have been disproportionately affected. Therefore, MISC involves inflammation that is frequently more diffuse, involving the intestines, heart, and brain. However, what also makes MISC unique are the psychological manifestations that arise due to COVID-19. These complications include general changes in brain function, such as confusion, memory loss, and unusual or strange behavior. In response to a viral infection, the immune response can send signals to the brain, such as the hypothalamus, the thermostat of the body, raising our temperature so that it can fight off infection. This is 
also known as a cytokine-induced sickness response. As a result, the rest of our body begins to slow down, allowing our immune system to take up all the energy our body has in store, leading to psychological distress, such as anxiety, depression, and brain fog. In more severe cases, dementia, hallucinations, and personality changes can follow. As a result, the pathology of MISC may be related to disorder of the immune system. As of right now, though, there is no treatment or cure for MISC. The treatment of choice is simply supportive care. Many questions arise over why the immune response in children with MISC isn't checked. Can MISC be diagnosed before the immune system is set into motion to help prevent life-threatening and psychological complications? Ongoing studies are still being produced to assess the long-term complications related to COVID-19. All right, let's jump into a case report on a 23-month-old female patient who presented to Dr. Sweeney, a physician working in the emergency department at the University of Louisville School of Medicine in Kentucky. Our patient was severely dehydrated with a fever of 100.9 degrees Fahrenheit, with an onset of about a week, along with overall fussiness and loss of sleep. The PCR for COVID-19 returned positive. Her story didn't end there, unfortunately. Two days after admission, she began to have seizures, quickly developing encephalopathy and hyperkinetic movements of her arms, legs, and head. Our patient was diagnosed with autoimmune encephalitis, commonly linked to other viral infections like HSV. This condition is characterized by mood and behavioral changes, seizures, abnormal movements, autonomic instability, and encephalopathy. It can also be categorized as a consequence of multisystem inflammatory syndrome, as we've mentioned before. And that's typically seen two to six weeks after a COVID infection, often producing only mild symptoms. These findings strengthen the theory that MISC is related to the drastic inflammatory response triggered by the immune system in response to the virus, and luckily it seems like most of their neurological symptoms resolve as their somatic symptoms are treated. As the pandemic has progressed, we have learned that for a not insignificant number of patients, the disease does not follow the expected time course. Many patients continue to have issues long after they tested negative for active infection by way of PCR, and these diverse experiential cases have been collected under the terms long-term or long-haul COVID-19, post-COVID syndrome, or post-infectious COVID-19. There is some evidence that these collective experiences might have diverse underlying causes as well as diverse presentations. And while many patients experience long-term effects related to their lungs, there is a significant number of patients whose long-term symptoms have affected almost totally different and un unexpected aspects of their lives. Because of time limitations, as the pandemic has progressed, we have learned that many patients continue to have issues long after they tested negative for active infection. While these patients experience very diverse and very different experiences or symptoms, they have all been collectively called long-term or long-haul COVID, or it could also be called post-COVID syndrome or post-infectious COVID-19. Because of time limitations, we're going to go ahead and focus on something that grabbed our attention the most, and that would be the neuropsychiatric aspect of post-COVID-19 syndrome. To better understand how long-term COVID-19 might affect the brain, let's ask what are the most common long-term neurological manifestations seen? 
Over the past year, COVID-19 survivors have been reported to experience a post-viral syndrome consisting of a concoction of neurological symptoms, like the two of which we alluded to earlier, the loss of taste or smell. Two studies published this year followed COVID-19 infected patients after discharge. The first study reports that over 1 in 10 patients have not regained their sense of taste or smell fully after 60 days. The second study followed discharge patients for six months and found that 7.1% of their survey participants still suffer from anosmia and or agusia. Furthermore, the neurological symptoms experienced by COVID survivors are far more expansive and include generalized symptoms like chronic malaise, diffuse myalgia, depressive symptoms, and non-restorative sleep. Other symptoms are more specific, like migraine-like headaches and cognitive impairments like brain fog that manifests as difficulties with concentration, memory, receptive language, and executive function. In a New York Times article published last March, Samar Khan recalls how she had blurry vision encircled with strange halos, a ringing in her ear, the scent of cigarettes or Lysol lingering in the background, trembling hands, and tingly legs. Shortly after, she developed an intense brain fog that made it feel like she had just come out from under anesthesia while at her job in financial services. And later during a meeting, she couldn't even remember what she was saying mid-sentence. Samar Khan, along with the other 100 patients enrolled in a study published in the Annals of Clinical and Translational Neurology, were previously highly functional, multitasking individuals at the top of their game. Now, 85% of them are seen struggling and present with four or more neurological symptoms months after their initial COVID infection. Post-COVID syndrome does not only present with neurological manifestations. More and more information about the psychiatric sequelae of COVID-19 have been reported and include symptoms like depression, anxiety, PTSD, insomnia, and more. Take, for example, Ivan Agerton's story that was published in the New York Times. Ivan is a 49-year-old former Marine and documentary photographer made accustomed to high-stress environments, but he suddenly noticed a kind of psychosis that turned his life upside down. In late November of 2020, he tested positive for COVID, but experienced only kind of minor symptoms, like a low-grade fever, mild respiratory symptoms, and a loss of smell. However, by mid-December, he began to experience much more. As he describes it, it felt, quote, like a light switch. It happened this fast. This intense paranoia hit me, end quote. He began to experience insomnia, extreme anxiety, auditory hallucinations, and symptoms mimicking schizophrenia, like suspecting the police were listening and following him as he tried to walk his dog. Well, we say mimicking schizophrenia because often patients are not aware of their own psychosis. Yet Ivan was fully aware of his thoughts and advised his wife to keep an eye out for any erratic behavior. Alarming cases like this beg the question. Is Ivan a one-off unique case, or should we all be a little bit more concerned? How commonly are long-term psychiatric symptoms reported in the literature? As it turns out, Ivan is not the only person experiencing such neurological manifestations long after recovering from COVID. One of the earliest studies on this topic was published in JAMA Neurology by Dr. Wang et al. in April of 2020. His data on 214 patients in Wuhan revealed that about a third of patients exhibited neurological symptoms, 
which were notably more common in patients with severe infection close to 1 in 2, or as high as 45.5%. A second, more extensive study published in February of this year in The Lancet by Dr. Harrison uses electronic health records from over 62,000 COVID-19 patients to demonstrate that between 14 and 90 days post-diagnosis, about one in five patients received a psychiatric diagnosis. And lastly, another study's results proposed that over one in two patients infected with COVID scored within the pathological range for a psychiatric sequelae. These studies help demonstrate that the issues highlighted by the New York Times article about Ivan are more widespread, and given how quickly this disease has spread, there are unfortunately more questions than there are answers. The patient reports and original research clearly demonstrates that neuropsychiatric manifestations are a real problem, which leads us to another set of questions to try and understand the underlying mechanism. We came up with three overarching questions. Is the virus infecting our brains? What cells could it be affecting and how? And how is the virus getting to our brains? To preface our discussion about the possible mechanisms, we'd like to remind our audience that we are very early in the process of understanding COVID-19 and the mechanisms behind many of these symptoms. It seems increasingly likely that there won't be a simple explanation, but rather a series of multiple hits that lead to such bizarre symptoms. Regarding our first question, is the virus infecting our brains? The jury is still out as to whether SARS-CoV-2 is a neurotropic virus, which is a virus capable of infecting neural cells. In order to answer this question, we will first turn to previous research on SARS coronaviruses. From the previous SARS pandemic, we have learned that the SARS-CoV-1 virus was detectable in patients experiencing seizures. However, the jury is still out for SARS-CoV-2. There is some evidence that the virus has direct effects on our neurological system. In a systematic literature review, Srivastava et al. reports that in 113 patients identified from 67 studies, 100% of fatal cases and 65% of non-fatal cases reported elevated CSF proteins. An elevated CSF protein level is a general finding that indicates inflammation, or in other cases, bleeding, tumor, or an injury. So while elevated CSF proteins cannot definitively prove that the virus is present in the brain, it does indicate that the disease process has neurological involvement, as we may have already suspected given the barrage of symptoms we talked about earlier. Further evidence comes from autopsy studies that have detected SARS-CoV-2 virus in the brain and other reports of antibodies against the spike proteins in the CSF. However, one major caveat of this study is, you guessed it, they were done using autopsy specimens and may not be reflective of the processes happening before death. And these studies cannot exclude a very real possibility that the virus and antibodies against the virus may have escaped from the blood vessels into the CSF in a transitative process. Just kidding, just kidding. I didn't expect you guys to guess that. As we continue to look for evidence as to whether the SARS-CoV-2 virus is neurotropic in nature, we came across an interesting case report. In June of 2020, a report from Sweden by Dr. Rostami was published in the journal Neurology. One day, a 55-year-old female patient presents to a rural emergency department, feeling feverish and reported experiencing muscle pain for the past five days. The doctors run a PCR test for COVID and perform a chest CT, both of which confirmed a diagnosis of COVID. With mild pulmonary opacities and a lack of symptoms, she was sent home the following morning. However, one day after returning home and seven days 
post-onset of symptoms, she is found unresponsive in her house with a mild fever. Upon further workup, a CT scan reveals symmetrical hypodensities in her thalami and midbrain, suggestive of acute necrotizing encephalitis. The medical team began to sample her CSF using PCRs for HSV, VZV, SARS-CoV-2, all of which returned negative on days 9 and 12 post-symptoms, but biomarkers for neuronal injury and inflammation returned positive. Surprisingly, on day 14, her CSF returned a positive result for SARS-CoV-2, albeit at low concentrations. A second similar case report corroborates Dr. Rostami's results, this one from Spain. Published in July, a month after Rostami's case, this study also found a positive CSF PCR for SARS-CoV-2, but this time in a 74-year-old woman. She presented with a severe headache and photophobia, vomiting, and 10-hour episode of visual aura prior to her headache with blurred binocular vision. Vision auras are blurry areas, fuzzy lines, blind spots, or flashes of light that appear typically preceding headache pain or a migraine. Now wait a second. You may be thinking to yourself, didn't they just present two conflicting pieces of evidence? On one hand, we presented Dr. Srivastava's review, which showed evidence that the CSF from over 100 patients only showed signs of inflammation, but no evidence that the virus was present in the nervous system. On the other hand, the case reports from Sweden and Spain showed positive PCR results indicating the presence of the virus in the CSF of two patients. So, what does it mean when case reports show evidence of viral neurotropy, but large-scale literature reviews or cohort studies do not come to the same conclusion? Well, the limitation of case studies is that they cannot inform on how widespread a particular manifestation of a disease might be. On the other hand, if a particular manifestation is only present in a subset of patients who fall into the inclusion category for a cohort in a large-scale study that particular manifestation might fail to reach the threshold of statistical significance due to our ignorance during cohort sampling to the latent stratification of the underlying population. This opens up an interesting bag of worms that is worth pursuing for just a second. Case studies are inherently limited by their small population sizes, mostly an N of 1, which means they cannot inform us on how widespread their conclusions are in the population. So while there's evidence that individual patients from separate hospitals presented with viral presence in their CSF, can we really say this is something we are concerned about on a larger scale? Or that their study methods are valid, given that they were not standardized or reviewed by a panel or a journal? However, just as a reminder, if this specific disease manifestation is only present in a small subset of patients, would it meet the threshold needed to be considered significant in a larger review or study due to oversights related to sampling? What if the research team simply selected the wrong cohort of patients? Remember, these literature reviews and cohort studies often look at published data or EHRs to find subjects. Perhaps these patients are not the right individuals to be examining. Or we are simply overlooking hundreds of potentially positive patients because their neurological manifestations were never documented by physicians. This is a developing phenomenon, so it is possible that physicians don't associate two seemingly unrelated pathologies to one another, so it either went undocumented or listed under the wrong ICD. Okay, okay, let's go back to the meat of this episode and refocus on how COVID got tired of the lungs and decided to start attacking the brains. 
As we discussed earlier in this episode, patients infected with COVID-19 are reporting neurological and psychiatric manifestations. This much is known and well-documented, pretty much not up for debate anymore. We just presented some, albeit weak, evidence that the virus or antibodies to the virus is present in the CSF of patients. This really begs the question, if SARS-CoV-2 is present in our nervous system, does it possess the mechanisms to then go on and infect our brain cells? And if the virus can get into our neurons, is this the mechanism behind the neurological manifestations seen across the world? The answer may not be so direct or even known at this point. We found several papers that show evidence to suggest SARS-CoV-2 may directly infect neural cells. Another hypothesis is that the systemic immune activation and chronic inflammation may actually contribute to neurological dysfunctions. Or perhaps there is an entirely different mechanism yet to be discovered at play here. Who knows? First, let us explore the possibility that COVID-19 may infect neural cells directly. Our nervous system is not composed of just one type of cell, but an amalgam of various cells with various functions. Let's get into a study that uses human progenitor cells to study the mechanisms behind SARS-CoV-2 entering neural cells. But before that, we would like to give some additional background. SARS-CoV-2 uses the ACE2 receptors present almost unanimously across our cells as a gateway for entry before replicating, spreading, and activating our all-important immune response. This receptor is found across multiple species, some of which are study models commonly used, like mice, monkeys, ferrets, and hamsters. Unfortunately, some of these models are poor test subjects in this particular case. Take the Cynomalgus macaques, or commonly known as crab-eating macaques. They are a species of monkeys often used in laboratories, and previous COVID research has shown evidence of viral shedding and replication in their lung tissues, with some pathological changes. However, there are no clinical symptoms, which means that while they do get infected with SARS-CoV-2, they do not get the COVID-19 disease. Not to mention, there are also concerns about the cost and convenience about doing this type of research using monkeys. Mouse models, which are more ubiquitous in the world of science, cost-effective, and more convenient, seem like another viable option. However, SARS-CoV-2 has shown poor cellular tropism, or the ability for a virus to be able to infect a cell, due to significant species differences in ACE2 sequence and function. Scientists have engineered a line of mice expressing human ACE2, and intranasal inoculation has led to SARS-CoV-2 RNA being detected in their brains. However, any conclusions drawn from these types of studies are not easily translatable to humans due to other CNS differences. To get the most clinically relevant data on whether COVID infects the brain or how, it is important to use materials gathered from humans. The simplest and most direct way is to use important human neural cell lines or primary cell lines. These studies have revealed how in isolation, primary olfactory sensory neurons as well as a line of human glioblastoma cells are highly susceptible. However, these studies do not replicate the complexity of the human brain, or even the 3D structures that exist. For that, we turn to another rapidly evolving technology. Fret no more, stem cell technology is here to save the day. Researchers have been able to utilize human-induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPSCs, a line of cells that can be differentiated into virtually any cell lineage to study the infectability of neural cells. These iPSCs can be used to derive 
organoids to model human disease processes and, in fact, have been previously used to study the impact of Zika virus, that groundbreaking research provided evidence linking the viral infection to microcephaly in 2017. But back to our discussion on COVID. In July of 2020, Chen et al. utilized IPSC models and a SARS-CoV-2 pseudovirus to demonstrate the correlation between ACE2 expression and susceptibility. Let's go over some findings. Their team and other researchers found that certain brain cells highly expressive of ACE2, like dopaminergic neurons, parasites, endothelial cells, and choroid plexus cells were highly susceptible to infection. Along with endothelial cells, pericytes from the blood-brain barrier support vascular integrity. While it is unlikely for the virus to cross the blood-brain barrier, it is possible that it first enters parasites, then causing vascular damage, and then infecting the brain. The choroid plexus is a complex network of epithelial cells that is responsible for producing CSF and serve as a major barrier between the blood and CSF, also known as the blood-CSF barrier. Certain regions of the brain, like the hippocampus, have been identified as more susceptible, with organoid models showing susceptibility even at lower titer loads. However, other iPSC-derived cells, like microglia and astrocytes, with weak to little ACE2 expression show very low to no susceptibility to infection. Microglia play an important role in neurodevelopment, innate immunity, and inflammation, by playing a similar role to macrophages. Astrocytes, on the other hand, the most abundant cell type in the CNS, play a key role in the formation and function of the blood-brain barrier. Given that the central nervous system is protected by the aforementioned mechanisms, how could the virus even be getting into our brain? While we do not have time to deep dive into these topics, we will leave you with three possibilities we have seen reported. One, the virus infects the brain via an intranasal pathway using olfactory neurons as an escalator. Two, Similar to the previously described pathway, the virus takes advantage of the gustatory trigeminal nervous system to take the party from the oral cavity to the neural cavity we like to call our skull. Poor oral health leading to bacterial infection has been shown to increase the risk of SARS-CoV-2, so start flossing, everyone! 3. The virus causes a gut infection and hitchhikes along the enteric nervous system to get to our brain. This mechanism has been previously studied in other viruses like HSV, VZV, and influenza. Or, you know, other mechanisms related to the possibility of a hematogenous invasion into the nervous system, possibly by infecting some of the neural cells like parasites or the choroid plexus like we discussed earlier. In a New York Times article from March of 2021, Judy Dodd, a middle school teacher, actor, and the director of Sweeney Todd, describes how she suffered from post-COVID symptoms for months. She struggled with shortness of breath, headaches, exhaustion, but then she got the vaccine in January. After her first shot, she felt so miserable. She almost changed her mind about getting the second one. And for about three days after that, she felt awful again. But on the fourth day, she says... Quote, I woke up and it was like, oh, what a beautiful morning, end quote. She is among a number of people who have reported that their post-COVID symptoms are improving, sometimes significantly after the vaccine. In a small British study looking into patients eight months after their hospitalization for COVID, those who were vaccinated reported an improvement in their long COVID symptoms, like joint pain and breathing. Keep in mind, though, Due to the staggered vaccine rollout, this group was older and had more underlying medical conditions than the control. 
Several other studies and surveys corroborate their findings that about a fifth to a third of patients are feeling better. Bridget Hayward, an operating room nurse from Virginia, describes how after contracting COVID last year, her body ached from her hands to her hips, and she became so brain fogged that instead of asking for a scalpel, she would say, quote, give me the sharp thing we would cut with, end quote. Her post-COVID symptoms hampered her abilities to do her job. She would briefly pass out trying to fix a patient's IV or plug in a hospital bed cord. One day after her first Pfizer dose in December, her symptoms suddenly improved and it felt like, quote, a darkness has lifted, end quote. Dozens of other patients in the article describe how they either suddenly or more gradually begin to feel better after their COVID vaccines. While these reports, surveys, and studies are by no means definitive, this very real possibility provides us with some comfort that we may be able to do something about these alarming neurological manifestations of long-haul COVID. And I would just like to thank our writing team, Darshan, Christian, and Madusser for helping put this episode together. And with that, I hope you guys enjoyed going on this journey with me. Regina Chi out! Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please email us at oumpodcast at cusm.org. That's O-U-M-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-U-S-M dot org.